Hi friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna, and I think jumbo jelly beans taste a lot better than the regular ones. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me. A show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. Okay, so for context, we're recording this episode on March 14th, 2020, and we're in the midst of a pandemic. I think the fascinating thing about the current situation is that there are two infections in our midst on the loose. We've got COVID-19 and we've got... Herpes. Panic. Yes. (laughs) No, no, no. no. And then... And and then also... So I guess three three infections. Because let's be honest, herpes hasn't gone anywhere. Right. But it's not new. And this is the new coronavirus. And while panic has been around since humans have been around, this is a new panic in response to a new situation. Both highly transmissible, both dangerous. I know f*** all about viruses, but I can talk to you about the psychology of panic and how we can protect ourselves and each other psychologically, which ultimately protects us physiologically. Mm -hmm. This is a panic-demic. Oh, I like that. TM, trademarked. (laughs) Buy the t-shirt. No, I get it. Going on my Facebook uh, last night, I very rarely unfriend people, even when we don't see eye to eye on Who'd you unfriend? Do you want me to name names? You want a name? (laughs) The name is boop. No, um... (laughs) The reason why I unfriended is because I don't want to look at that misinformation. I'm I'm so tired of listening to like people telling people to calm down or people telling people to panic, you know, both extremes, just like politically, it's the same thing. There's a fine line here between being completely aware of what's going on around you, staying informed and just being smart and courteous to others. It's finding balance, which finding is a really balance. hard for really our brains hard, right yeah. now. With, with everything coming in, it's just, it's an influx of information, good, bad and, and wrong. So that's what I wanted so. to talk about today is just like, how do humans react in the midst of high stress, high anxiety, panic? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start by talking about a phenomenon. 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 Called collective obsessive behavior. Wait, collective obsessive behavior, aka panic. (laughs) Collectively. What the hell? Of course. Like mass hysteria. (laughs) Mass hysteria. Dogs Um, and cats. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to explore moral panic. Mm -hmm. Do you have a problem with that one? Moral panic? I have no problems with morals. Okay, great. Then we're going to dig into fear and anxiety, which you already started talking about. And then finally, we'll figure out how do we take better psychological care of ourselves. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so I'm going to start with a very personal question. Okay. Why did you buy so much toilet paper this week? I did not buy any toilet paper. I found Okay, those. let me ask you another question. <laughs> Why are you lying to my face? No, no, no. I no. watched you get an extra shopping cart. You want to be? You want to do the honest truth? Yes. The, the complete honest truth? Yeah, I do. Okay. I can't use any other brand. <laughs> <laughs> Even in a pandemic, i got to use the extra soft, not extra strong. So when I went and I saw that only extra soft was left, I, I didn't buy a lot. Oh, only bought, extra soft was left. Well, there were there were like extra, extra strong, which is like wiping your butt with a dog. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's bad. It's, <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. See how your face is? Yeah, it's that uncomfortable. But the extra soft one, there were only a few left. I left a couple and I took two. Oh, you left some. Yeah, I didn't take it all. I I left two and I took two. Look, the bottom line is this. If you're stocking up on toilet paper, you're not really preparing yourself for a pandemic. I don't know what the hell. (laughs) Nowhere in The Walking Dead were they like, let's go get the paper. You know, if worse comes to worse, you bidet it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to. You're saying if worse comes to worse, install a bidet. No, I'm saying if worse comes <laughs> to worse, use some water. <laughs> improvise a bidet. 
<laughs> and clean your butt butt. So I grew up in Ukraine, lived in a very small town. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we didn't even have toilet paper. This podcast is over. I have to go. There's something I did not know about Tanya <laughs> that she didn't wipe her butt for the remember. first six years of no, her life. No, we wiped, but we used... All right, here we go. If you needed to, there were these leaves that we thought of as like toilet paper leaves. <laughs> Hold the phone. Wait, wait, wait. You grew up in Ukraine, not in some little village on the Amazon. I'm not saying this was in Kiev. This is in Vishniki. Okay. This is where we had we had an outhouse. You had an outhouse. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me that as a country, developing country, I granted in the nineties it was tough. You didn't use toilet paper? You know, let me fact check this. I gotta I gotta go yeah. back. I know that sometimes when we didn't go in the outhouse when we just went like in the field. Which okay, was- okay, back <laughs> Wait a goddamn minute. See, we had this thing where we, who had the worst childhood and she like casually, subtly drops these little things. You dig a little hole. Occasionally when I went in the the field growing up. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. My point is, I think we can both. (laughs) Well, you should. It's the courteous thing to do is to dig a hole. Anyway, my point is that. All around the world, people are getting by without toilet paper. The reason I wanted to bring up the toilet paper is that the week before that, I think it was the hand sanitizer craze. Yeah. That I can understand, although <laughs> the idea that all these people are trying to hoard hand sanitizer. Right, right. Shouldn't we be wanting everyone to get some exactly. so that they don't so infect we us? Don't, we don't infect us. So I think there's some irrational behavior there. The toilet paper in particular just seemed to me It was extreme. very shocking to it me. It was shocking. <laughs> so I think that's an interesting example of collective obsessive behavior. And as you said, it used to go by the term mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start by actually playing you a quick music (gasps) clip. I'm going to stop it there. Mm -hmm. Do you know what that music was? Yeah, that was your uh, fourth birthday party (laughs) in Ukraine. That was not Ukrainian. It was actually Italian folk music called Tarantella. Mm -hmm. Tarantella. Tarantula. Do you know the origin, supposed origin of the music and the dance? I believe it has to do with a person who was served pasta and it had a spider in it. (laughs) And okay, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of something else. I'm thinking of something else. You're close. I'm thinking of something else. Uh, oh, it's okay. So this uh, kid, he was uh, kind of an awkward teenager. He goes on a field trip, gets bitten by a spider, and turns out that spider was like radioactive. All right. Yep. Yeah, that's the plot of Spider-Man. I thought so, that sounded familiar. Yeah. This yeah. goes back farther, farther than that. Mm-hmm. The first reported case of what I'm about to tell you about happened in the 11th century in southern Italy. Hundreds, eventually thousands of people claimed that they had gotten bitten by the wolf spider, mm-hmm. a.k.a the tarantula, resulting in sudden, prolonged, violent outbursts of dancing. Dancing. I know this. I know this. Usually in large groups. I think of this as the original flash mob. (laughs) Some historical accounts report that people thought dancing would cure them of the bite, so you'd like sweat it out. Oh, wow. Other historians believed or other people said that they thought that this was a symptom of the bite. I imagine this was a time where there's a lot of fake news, so maybe they were dancing. They didn't know why they were dancing. Well, not just fake news, but also no scientific backing for any of the fake, much like now, but like back then, lore was science. But it didn't just happen in Italy, and it wasn't just a spider thing. So from about the 11th to the 17th centuries, there were many accounts of a pandemic Mm -hmm. spreading through Europe called the Dancing Plague. So here's one description by Benjamin Lee Gordon from his book, Medieval and Renaissance Medicine. (laughs) Okay. They danced together ceaselessly for hours or days and in wild delirium. The dancers collapsed and fell to the ground, exhausted, groaning and sighing as if in the agonies of death. That's a little dramatic. (laughs) 
a little dramatic. But that's okay. Just because you're getting your freak on, and then people are like, and then all the way to death, this man grind and and freaked and tweaked, <laughs> twittered and fell. You got stuck there because you didn't know the past tense of grind, did you? Ground. <laughs> Grunt. Um, look, I, I've heard this story, and and it's it's almost impossible to believe until you actually experience some kind of have you experienced the dance plague no i thought i did in our eighth grade dance i was just a terrible dancer but uh but no no no. i mean like uh, the the, you know salem witch trials i mean you've ah we'll talk a little bit about the salem witch trials that would be considered a moral panic so what we're talking about here this is something in psychology that's considered a mass conversion disorder Hmm. also known as a mass psychogenic illness psychogenic means physical symptoms that arise out of emotions or thoughts. Interesting. So whereas Salem witch trials, it was everyone was believing a certain thing. Here, we're talking about about the the same physical reaction. But what about the girls that were the witnesses that were saying they were bewitched? Ah, And they were twitching on Mm -hmm. the ground and they were acting bananas and all that stuff. I do want to say that there is some debate among historians about whether these dance plagues were actually an expression of illness or an expression of like celebration and bonding Hmm. but generally in psychology this is considered a psychological illness particularly because people said they didn't want to be doing it Hmm. it's not like they were like yes i want to join this dance party they were saying this is painful i want to stop i'm exhausted yeah do you know why it's no longer called hysteria in psychology i think it has to do with women is that correct yeah can i tell you about it yeah please okay so the term hysteria comes from the greek word hystera meaning uterus Mm. and ancient greek and egyptian writings document the belief that the uterus could roam around the body suffocating organs and leading women to freak out emotionally which i still don't not believe yeah just kidding i love the treatment that they would prescribe i mean even plato wrote about this hippocrates wrote about this so here's the treatment if your uterus is roaming, mm-hmm. you could sneeze or it could be coaxed back into its original position by placing pleasant scents near your vagina mm-hmm. or unpleasant scents near your mouth. I would go with a sneeze. It just sounds a little, <laughs> it sounds less messy. Or you can be like, hey, this is sexist and let's not believe in that. <laughs> no, but aren't you proud of me that I knew I'm so that proud of hysteria you. Yes. was something to do with women and it was bad. It was like, yeah. I, I just yeah. couldn't remember. What, uh, so, but this is actually relatively recent. So even after clinicians realized that the uterus wasn't like out for a stroll, <laughs> psychologists <laughs> believed hysteria was a purely female condition. So that's one of my next thing is what about men who are freaking out? Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, those guys were like vampires, you know, like they were the butchers. You know, if a guy <laughs> went nuts and started yeah, like killing people there. He was a werewolf and this he was a vampire. This is one of the big historical kind of debates right now is there are many, many documented cases of female, what was then called mass hysteria. But one hypothesis is maybe women just spend more time together. Maybe they're more social. But the more likely hypothesis, especially given some of the stories that I'll share with you in a moment or the case studies I'll share with you in a moment, is that because of the biases that were held for so long mm-hmm. when men did it, it wasn't labeled that way. Yeah. As soon as women started freaking out, they were like, hey, hey, don't get hysterical. <laughs> so it wasn't actually until the 1980s that the American wow. Psychiatric Association cut the term hysteria from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is like the Bible of psychiatry. Yeah. Turns out both psychogenic illness and mass psychogenic illness is an equal opportunity offender. There are, again, more cases documented in women, particularly teenage women, but it still seems to be more of an issue of 
biased reporting. Either way... Well, let me ask you this. How yeah. do you feel when someone's like, oh my God, that was hysterical? Do you feel like it's sexist? If they're laughing at my joke, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, words have power. So just by so, eliminating any version of that. If we can be like 10% more deliberate about adjusting the language, the history and the baggage comes with a word. So I think it's worth it. Yeah, I'm all in. So let's brainstorm. If you think I'm being really funny, what are some other options? Surprising. <laughs> wow. Boom, yeah. Cha-ching. <laughs> okay. Can I share some other examples with you <laughs> yes, of uh, mass psychogenic illness? Okay. So, you walked right in. I can't even tell you. Like that was I. I laid the trap out. You know what I mean? Covered the the little hole with grass. So should I start sharing the example, or do you want to keep voting? <laughs> okay. So this one's a very much male panic situation. Right. This one happened in 1967 in Singapore. It sometimes goes by the name of Koro epidemic. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can, can I can I take a guess? Yeah. Does that have to do with the uh, the 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 male the male member? Uh, the male member. The the male. Which which part? male member? The male, male member of which which group? No 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 no, no. the male. The the stupid uh, <laughs> the um, the uh, the uh, his penis. Yes. Yes. It does. Yes, it does I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Basically, if I if I can and you, you clear me up on this because this might Yeah, you're I, you're gonna have to say peanuts, are you okay with that? I'll say peanuts. Um so <laughs> uh, a bunch of men started thinking that their peanuts were, were going going back into their into their body, right? That they were like retracting. So they were pulling it out and like pulling on it and like causing irreparable damage to the male peanuts because they were he was they were like I'm really enjoying all the peanuts. Sorry, yes, but you don't see is me using my hands. <laughs> the most lewd version uh, yeah, okay. So Thank much God this isn't on video. Um so yeah, so is that is that Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is funny in retrospect. I can't imagine how scary this must have been to go through this experience. Apparently, yeah, a bunch of men became convinced that this vaccine that was administered to pigs oh. that they then later ate led their peanuts to <laughs> <laughs> you see how ridiculous that yes, sounds? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Shrinking, retracting fear. There was fear that it would cause death. Yep. Pork sales dropped dramatically. Men filled hospitals complaining of symptoms. Some men even started wearing wooden clamps and strings around their peanuts, which, <laughs> spoiler alert, is not a good idea. Um, it's not a bad idea. It's not, it depends on what yeah, outcome you're going I mean, yeah. But apparently did cause physical damage. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know how many people were afflicted? Because I, if, I believe it was, like, it was around 80. So it, it wasn't actually a huge number, but, but they that had was 80 only medical people, cases. Yeah, 80 medical cases, which yeah. means that... 80 people were treated. Yeah, which means maybe about 700 were too ashamed to go into a hospital. Definitely possible. Definitely possible. And do we know how that started? Because, you know, it has to start with one story. Some guy coming out and being like, hang on your peanuts. You're not going to believe this. And then, <laughs> right. you know, and then... Here's one where I do know the origin story. So this is in East Africa. This happened in also in the 1960s. So it was a, a wild time. This was at a boarding school. Several mm-hmm. teenage girls started laughing uncontrollably. And then this led to frequent and sudden outbursts among other girls. So after about a month of this, school officials got so frustrated, they actually just sent everyone home. 
which resulted in the laughter epidemic spreading to their homes and their communities, wow. infecting. You asked about the numbers on the other one. This was approximately 1,000 people no. infected with uncontrollable laughter. So you said it started with the school, which is interesting because a lot of times when something happens with kids, they want to feel included. This has been documented even being spread over YouTube with young kids, teenagers saying, hey, I'm feeling these symptoms. Are you feeling these symptoms? And then people yeah. being like, I think I'm feeling the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember the toilet paper thing you asked about. The first video I saw was two women arguing over toilet paper in Australia. And somehow or another, it got to us that, holy shit, the Americans America. were like, I guess we should <laughs> yeah. be arguing over toilet paper. And, and it just it just cascaded into, oh my God, all the basic elements that hold that and yeah. toilet paper makes us feel safe. Toilet paper is home. Toilet paper is like privacy. I'm fine with leaves. No, but but what I'm saying is it, the symbol of that, security. it's vulnerability. That's it's, a great point. And, and and so when that happened, when toilet paper, not water, not band-aids, not medicine, <laughs> right, right. toilet paper was gone. Holy shit, this is real. I'll share another one, and this this is more disease-related, and this one also hits closer to home. So in 2001, after the September 11th attacks, do you remember when there were all those reports of anthrax? Yeah, of course. Everywhere? Of course. So according to a cable news network report, there were over 2,300 anthrax false alarms in the mm-hmm. first two weeks. And this was from people saying that they felt nauseous, they had headaches, mm. they felt dizzy. So not saying that they saw the powder, but actually feeling the effects of anthrax. I don't know if you remember, at the time it was like, you might not even know if it's in your mail. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, people were actually saying, I feel these symptoms. And at the end of the day, they were psychogenic. There wasn't mm-hmm. a physical reason that they were having those reactions. I remember a few years ago when there was like a really bad flu and I started feeling sick like immediately because all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I have a headache. I, I feel chilly. Yeah, because it's like 20 degrees outside. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't wearing a hat or like, and all these things. But like yeah. all of a sudden you start to it, like. There's this thing called medical student syndrome, which happens when medical students or psychology students, this is really common too, when you first start learning about things and you're like, I have that. Oh, I have that disorder. You start actually self-diagnosing because you start noticing these little bits and pieces of symptoms within yourself. And we know a friend of ours or a couple of friends that slipped down that WebMD hole. Yeah, one of those friends is named Brian Luna. Yeah. Wait, wait a (laughs) second. And Brian Luna's mom. No. Well, no. Thank God my mom doesn't know how to do WebMD. Are you kidding? Oh, my God. It's true. Oh, my but this God. Is, but this is actually, I think it's related very closely to what we're talking about. Why do you think collective obsessive behaviors or mass psychogenic behaviors happen? Okay, so I think a little bit has to do with being part of the group, mm. like the group as it's getting bigger. I think it has a lot to do with just wanting to be on the inside looking in as opposed to the outside looking in mm. and, and not being a part of it. One theory in psychology or really evolutionary psychology is that we're much more herd-like than we realize. Was it yesterday? I think we were looking at a deer, the group of deer, mm-hmm. and one deer got startled and immediately everyone yeah. took off. Mm-hmm. Without even looking where the danger was. Without looking, without even checking. In many ways, humans are like that, where if either influential humans or a large number of humans start to panic in a particular way, it's almost like our brains shut off and we just follow the herd. So something just hit me is that this is the reason why I removed people from my Facebook last night. People wanted to feel part of the community by telling everyone not to panic and this is the way it is. And you're talking about your religion, you're talking about your political beliefs, you're talking about whatever. And you're contributing to this thing because you think Hmm. that your opinion is going to change that by trying to solve the problem. So by by throwing in all your expert, hey guys, it's a government ploy. Oh, and I heard this and I heard this. And I heard this. We are so much more of a herd than we realize. Mm -hmm. We're so much more of a tribe than we realize that we probably have this like intense desire 
there yeah. to help people. Or to be part of it. I think there's another component to it too, which is research shows that when we feel a strong emotion, we tend to talk about it. Mm. It's almost like the way that our brain either processes or removes that cognitive burden, or maybe it's a way for us to make sense of it. We tend to share about 90% of the emotional things that happen to us unless the emotion is shame. So you combine emotion, you combine this kind of herd, community, tribal, let's pour information in, let's sense make together. There's another component to it, which is in terms of looking at research on these mass reactions, Mm -hmm. psychogenic reactions, they typically happen after very stressful or scary times. Mm -hmm. For example, in the book Epidemics of the Middle Ages, a physician named Justice Hecker pointed out that the dancing plagues coincided with periods of severe disease. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was the Black Plague crop failures, famine, things like that. After polio outbreaks, there were a lot of these things going on after 9-11. It seems like when there's this extreme stress, it's almost like our ability to process information rationally and to have self-control breaks down. Mm. And we're more needy and hungry when it comes to being a part of something. And in this case, we're really desperate for information. So it's shocking to us because we see ourselves as such individuals. But this is a reminder of how interconnected we all are. I think the other aspect of mass psychogenic illness, so not like the toilet paper situation, which Mm. is more obsessive, but psychogenic meaning it's psychological, but it shows up as physical. physical. You start to see these reactions like seizures or fainting with no physical cause. One of the explanations for that is that there's this anxiety spiral. So you notice that someone maybe that you know well is feeling sick. You start to maybe notice a little bit of that symptom in yourself. That ratchets up your anxiety. Then you start hyperventilating. Hyperventilating leads sure. to more dizziness, leads to more nausea, leads to more headaches, and then it sort of spirals from there. So in my culture, the way I grew up, you know, Latino culture, funerals were a very strange time because they were very funny. They were very sad. Funny? Yeah, I say funny because people were always sharing stories mm. about the deceased and laughing. And and it sounds like you're you're like chopping them down, but you're actually building them up. Like, like a roast? A little roast. bit of, oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I said I never wanted a funeral. Scratch that. If I could get a roast, that sounds great. I don't think that's, and I don't, I don't mean be like problem. being cremated. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> No. No? No. Okay. One of the other things, and I know this happens in other cultures too, but um, sometimes people compete. Oh, who's going to cry emotion. No, 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 no. Not cry. Faint. Um, oh, yeah. Scream. I had this one great aunt that would like, when we saw her come into grandpa's funeral, you're like, oh, here we go. Who's going to, it's going to be either between Aunt Bancha or, you know, this one, you know, over here. And then you're like, who's it going to be? Who's going to go for it? And sure enough, you'd hear this scream. Ah! And then boom, and she, you know, she's a big woman. So when she hit people, people, you know, in movies they always catch the the people. No one caught. Everyone would step back. Yeah, well, you you couldn't because like she's, you know, she's gonna take you out, and then you might be laid up next to Grandpa or something like that in a couple of weeks. People would scream, and then and then in, in five minutes, someone else would do it, and then. I do think there was like this it's weird... It's a heightening that also happens. Yeah, but I, I do mean, think even there was like this about... weird psychosis thing that was going through <laughs> the, the thing. I'm also know, so. thinking about even like when you're at a dance party, think about the positive version of this or I don't know, a sports event maybe for in your case. <laughs> I'm guessing that when you're watching a game with a bunch of sports fans... Mm. Or you're watching a comedy, all of a sudden you're not just like chuckling, you're laughing out loud yeah. or you're cheering or you're having this amazing dance battle <laughs> <laughs> at the sporting event. 
Dancing, dancing, dancing. I don't know why I said dance battle. I haven't had a dance battle in a while. I've never been. I've only seen one dance battle in Vegas, and it was not like on TV. It was lame. Anyway, my point is having these other people experience the same thing at the same time it's a really intensified experience but i do want to clarify i'm not suggesting that COVID 19 is like peanut panic right it's a very real thing peanut (laughs) i think i'm gonna say that from now on it's a serious risk but i do think that sudden reactions like buying up all that toilet paper are a good example but right but the actual symptoms for the actual virus are not in your head They are legitimate things to be aware of, absolutely. So just to wrap up on this topic before we go on to moral panic, what do you think is a calm, rational approach to toilet paper purchasing if you're looking out for yourself and others? Look, Just don't buy it or do you think buy it? No, no, no. I think if you need it, buy it. If you're stockpiling it for some weird toilet paper war that we think is going to happen where we're going to need that as ammunition, uh, you know, or some weird alien race that's going to come down and, and, and demand our toilet paper... Uh, I do think that just buying what you need and then if there is a situation where there isn't any... You'll be fine. You'll be fine. People, you know, existed probably about 15 years before toilet paper was invented. <laughs> but, you know, and but, I think you had a really nice perspective, which is if you can help it, leave some on the shelf. But, uh, you know, it's so hard to tell people that and sound like... You're on some, like, throne of toilet paper saying, well, just leave the last one. Don't take them all. Just to be clear, we're both sitting on toilet paper thrones right now. I am on a toilet paper throne and I'm loving it. Brian's is much bigger than mine because he has the (laughs) two-ply. Yeah, Tanya goes out. I remember one time just to, just like, if if there is a toilet paper shortage, don't worry. Don't send Tanya out. Because one day I was like, hey, can you bring home toilet paper? And she brought home one ply. I was like, what is this? Public school? It's an public upgrade high school? from leaves it was and newspapers. Not, not much. Not by much. <laughs> I'm telling you. Anyway, I, I don't like, mean to judge. I really don't because this is the thing. It's not like there are a bunch of, you know, toilet paper hoarders out there. It's mm. This is all of us reacting in this way. I didn't way. mean that you were judging. I'm saying like, I don't want this to come off as preachy, but yeah, I don't see. take the last one. I mean, there I'm just saying like some you. practical tips, right? So mm. something to remember to kind of cool off in that moment where you're like, <gasps> the shelf is empty. Your brain's reaction is grab the last one. Mm-hmm. Instead, you can think, do I already have enough? Can I save this for someone else? So that could be a way to do it. Breathing is great. Just taking a breath. This isn't the end of times. This is just a really terrible situation that together we can all get through, meaning we all have to be on the same plane. We have to share our toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we talked about physical mass Mm -hmm. panic. Now let's turn our attention to what's called moral panic. Woo, my favorite kind of panic. (laughs) Oh my God, moral panic is the best. So this is a term coined by sociologist Stanley Cohen out of South Africa. And as a case study, Cohen used the example of mod and rocker culture, or really subculture, in the 1960s in the UK. Okay. This was a great case study of society just absolutely freaking out because of the subculture of kids that were seen as violent, you know, kind of taking over society. What he did was he broke down the common patterns of moral panic into five stages. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read these stages for mm-hmm. you, one to five, and then I'd love to hear what comes to mind. So stage one, moral panic. A person or group is seen as a threat to social safety. This is something that Cohen nicknamed the folk devils. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, community members and news media use some kind of simplistic, easy-to-recognize symbol to describe this threat. Okay. This can be a stereotypical image or an example. Number three, the symbol 
and message of threat spreads far and fast, creating widespread panic and fear. Okay. Number four, authorities respond to perceived threat with new laws or policies. And number five, the moral panic leads to some kind of social change, either suppressing the folk devils or, over time, changing community values and norms. Are there any examples of moral panic that come to mind for you? I think in modern times right now, like what we're talking about is, you know, we have this uh, image of illegal immigrants or, or immigrants coming into the country as a huge threat. And, you know, the the symbol, if we close our minds and think of the illegal immigrant that... If you close your eyes. If you close your eyes, sorry, if you clo- and you close your minds. Uh, <laughs> but if you close your eyes and, and think about the immigrant that they're talking about, we all have an image of, of what that is, you know, when... It's not a Canadian. It's not a Canadian. It's not someone from, you know, a European country. It's someone from south of the border. And we look at how the media kind of took hold of that and really grabbed onto it and says, yeah, there is a threat. They're all coming to kill us and and harm us in in some way. And then the sweeping legislature on that. I mean, we're looking at what we see now, uh, a fear of the unknown with them every day. And, you know, what we just talked about is a modern day example using a theory and framework that was developed so long ago. Yeah. But it's still like we're, we're following the same script. Some other well-known ones are Salem Witch Trials, mm-hmm. to your point earlier. Widespread fear that video games would lead kids to oh. commit murder, especially yeah. in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the immigrants taking jobs is a great example. PG-13 was a huge legislative sweep with film and violence and sexuality. Comic books, too, right? Oh, yeah. Seduction we almost lost it. We almost lost comic books in the 50s. This politician came out and he was like, this is the reason why we have teenage delinquents. This is it. And people were burning comic books. The target was the guy who ran Mad Magazine because he also ran... So he was the folk devil. He was the folk devil. And they looked at him because of the, the kind of comics he put out. He put out these detective pulp stories and these horror stories. That's why we have the comics code right now. The gay agenda. Remember that? In like the 90s, 2000s, where everyone was like, everyone's gonna force everyone to be gay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Islamophobia after 9-11, I think that was one. And now, of course, with COVID-19, we're seeing this widespread xenophobia in response to, we've got Chinese people, Chinese Americans who perhaps never have even been to China, don't speak Chinese, pretty much anyone who looks Asian right now. Would you categorize that as moral panic? Like, do stages one through five? I mean, hopefully we don't get to stage four. Yeah, we're not there with... But we have to be so mindful about our susceptibility to this because Mm. it can be really easy for people to get swept up. And Um, I think we have to just be so conscious of being careful not to perpetuate those simplistic, mm -hmm. stereotypical images. Like I think you were saying someone else on your Facebook passing along videos (laughs) of people in China eating weird foods, like the foods that we eat anywhere aren't weird if you just step back and look at it. Take a look at it, right. But those are the kind of quick mm -hmm. symbols. And then like, this is why we have corona. Here it is. But they would look at us with the things that we do or culturally how we treat our families or our parents and, and think yeah. that's crazy and that's weird. How Like, how are you going to let your grandmother live alone? Right, right, exactly. So how do you think we can overcome moral panic? By getting rid of the moral and the panic and really... <laughs> Just stop well, it. I, I think as humans, we, we talked about at the beginning of this podcast how we are herd 
animals. Yep. We want to care for one another. And I think once we limit who we care for, who we are caring for, yes. whether it be color, distance. I think it's so important to draw wider circles around our identities. So you don't just start seeing yourself as I'm a member of this community yes. or I'm a member of this country or even I'm a member of the species. This sure. is one thing that I remind myself often. We are all members of the same planet. Yeah. What can I do for, for my planet roommates? Yeah. After 9-11, I was at the Red Cross and I was volunteering like that next day. And, and there were a bunch of us there like just kind of lost and we we just needed to do something. I left there in tears that first day because we weren't looking at our watches. No one was looking at the time. Everyone was just kind of like, what do we do until they send us away? And it was beautiful. And you look around and no one looked like me. Well, it's because oh, you're man. a really good looking guy. I'm a really good looking guy. Of course. Like, that's why they didn't have me do anything. They were just like stand there as a symbol. Just to inspire what, us. <laughs> and, wear the, and wear these eagle wings. But it was beautiful because everyone was just kind of digging in. And yeah. there, were, there were no tribes that day. There weren't, And I, was, I couldn't tell you how happy and proud I was. With this, with this virus, which is harming a lot of people, which causing a lot of disruption, can actually bring us closer together. Like this virus can actually help us repair what maybe has been broken for a long time if we let it. Well, if nothing and, else, think about COVID-19 showing us how interconnected we are yeah, and how yeah. quickly we all impact Faster each other. Faster than anything I've ever seen in I didn't my think someone life. in Wuhan was going to impact my life personally, mm-hmm. right? And that is now abundantly clear how interconnected we are. So what if we could use that same connection in a positive way. Yeah. So I do want to talk about what are some ways that we can cope and maybe even use these feelings that we're having. But before that, I just want to spend a few minutes diving into what is the psychology of fear and anxiety and panic. We talked about this a little bit in the episode, Your Brain is Hanging Upside Down. So I'll touch a little bit on that and then go, go deeper. So the amygdala, familiar with it. There's actually two of them and they monitor information that we take in. If the amygdala sends a threat, they hijack the brain, porting information away from the rational part of the brain, the neocortex, sending information over to our limbic system. This is a survival mechanism. It makes sense. It's your amygdala basically saying, don't overthink it, stupid. You've got to take action right now. On top of that, when we get stressed, our cortisol levels escalate. And with that, our peripheral vision narrows. Mm -hmm. So it's actually like our brain is just forcing us not to look around, not to take any details, not to pause and reflect, but just to see what's right in front of us and survive. And not only are we being rash in our actions, researchers Katrin Stark and her team found that stress impacts us in another really significant way. Before I tell you more about that, can I recreate part of their experiment with you? Hell yeah. All right. So I'm going to film this. Okay. (laughs) And uh, afterwards, I'm going to share it so that other people can assess how well you did. And we're going to go fast. So you have to pay attention to my instructions. How do I look? Am I... You look... Sufficient. So challenge number one. Okay. Really fast. I want you to convince our listeners that Talk Psych to Me is the best podcast out there. Go. Talk Psych to Me is the best podcast out there because it has two remarkable individuals, not just me and Tanya. Okay, just me and Tanya. But the point is, is that it's important because it takes things that it it takes things that happen to us every day, everything that we're going through that we maybe get a little confused about, and it puts us it puts it in perspective. It it lays it out there so you understand. It's like basically taking apart a model airplane and putting laying all the pieces out so you know how it flies. That was okay. Challenge number two. Now I'd like you to serially subtract 17 from 2043 as fast and as accurately as you can. Ready, set, go. 2058. Wrong. 2043 minus 17. 2028. 
Wrong. Try again. <laughs> 2025. Wrong. Try again. You're crazy. 2043 minus 17. <laughs> 2043 minus 17. 2026. Better. Keep going. Keep going? Yeah, serially subtract. Oh, 17. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, 2009. Um, Next. Uh, 2092. Um, uh, Time's up. Eight, Stop. 70, 75, 75. Time's up. Now I want you to answer these four questions with yes or no. Ready? Uh-huh. Question number one. You are at a boring play with very few audience members. Do you leave? Yes. An elderly person cuts in front of you at the supermarket checkout line. Do you complain? No. You find $20 on the sidewalk and see a homeless person. Do you give them the money? Yes. You meet the love of your life, but you are married and have kids. Do you leave your family? No. Okay, done. <laughs> so, how was that? I guess, I, I mean, I, I, I felt okay. I, I, I like that. I like that, like, pressure. I you enjoyed that. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, I made some adjustments, obviously, <laughs> here. Mm-hmm. The gist of the study was the same. Participants had to make a persuasive speech in front of stern judges wearing mm-hmm. lab coats you were definitely stern but you weren't wearing a lab coat i wasn't i didn't have a lab coat for mm-hmm. this were uh, they were also being filmed on camera okay. and being told that their speech was going to be analyzed mm-hmm. and then they had to do the serial subtraction that you yeah. did with lots of criticism the interesting part comes when they ask them a series of yes or no moral dilemmas oh so those were the questions that i asked you i just gave you some examples from their research by the way covid19 I would say much more stressful than serial subtraction. But the point was to just get their cortisol levels going. So they actually didn't care about subjective feelings of stress. Mm -hmm. They wanted that cortisol in the bloodstream. What's your guess? How would the stress impact people's moral decision making? That's a great question because I don't know. What they found is that when people's cortisol levels went up for highly emotional moral dilemma questions, people answered more selfishly. So not only in the present day, are we making rash decisions because we're stressed? Mm -hmm. Not only are we not considering the different options, we're not kind of looking around, we are also acting really selfishly. And I think it's because it's a way of kind of uh, repairing ourselves. I say repairing, not preparing, like healing ourselves, right? So you you just had that extremely stressful situation and then you want to take care of you. It's you and it's usually people very close to your tribe. So you're looking out for yourself. You're looking out for your close-knit community or Mm -hmm. loved ones, which in many ways excuses selfishness because you're like, well, I just have to look out for my family. Let everyone else look out for themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's exactly what you're reading on on Facebook too. It's like my family, my family. And again, we're not talking about bad people this is just what stress fear and anxiety and panic do to us and then if you add uncertainty to the mix it makes our brains even more thoughtless even more selfish even more rash and likely to take action and if you add the physical distancing that people are doing right now that leads to even less empathy because we're getting less face time and what's worse is that just when we need our immune systems to be at their strongest anxiety inhibits our immune system response and as we talked about in our episode on the psychology of popularity epigenetics research shows that when we are lonely or isolated our immune system function deteriorates so check this out i got an idea then remember chat roulette back in the day yeah i challenge everybody to log into some kind of um with your family get everyone and get everyone's little faces in that camera and then just meet other people out there five minutes at a time hey what are you going through what are you experiencing what are you that sounds awesome i want to do that with you tonight i want to go and, and put it's just our faces. me and you in the chat roulette no me you and and, and hucky and then go huckleberry and, again huckleberry our, our uh, laboratory assistant and dog <laughs> and, favorite dog uh, and let us like all go out there interact and with other people in the world interact with people yeah, yeah so we can get some face time with because with, you're right it really is easy to be like i'll take that last roll of 
toilet paper. F those other people that ain't that you know have dirty whatever backsides. But if we, if we knew who else was out there, it might change us a little bit, especially when we're not in those highly stressful environments like yeah. the supermarket. So I think a really really important thing to remember right now is psychological health is physical health. It's not one or the other. One aids the other. Mm -hmm. If you can monitor and reduce your own anxiety, if you can create more of a sense of psychological connection, you will be boosting your immune system, which then boosts the collective public health. So let's talk about that. In our last few minutes, what are we going to do to change our gene expression so that we have an improved immune system? And don't just do it for immune systems. Do it for your mental health. I'll start with one. Okay. Maybe we can trade some tips. Okay. I love your idea of the, the chat roulette. Got yeah. your tips. That's one of our favorite quotes. Who's that from? <laughs> Tropic Thunder? Tropic Thunder. <laughs> I'm trying to come up too, man. Got any tips? Got any tips? So uh, I'll share one that my coworker, Diane Sadowski-Joseph, came up with recently. Her rule is no news naked. Hmm. No news naked. What she means by that is don't start your day or end your day by reading scary, stressful things. Oh, that's awesome. What's one for you? No lunch naked. <laughs> it's like don't eat peanut butter and jelly. Na- okay. That's you are really, one. you hate eating naked. I can't. I can't do it. Okay. But let's talk about how it. to reduce anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one way for me. <laughs> uh, put some Stop on. eating lunch naked, people. Yeah, well, stop eating lunch naked. Okay. How about this? Um, every negative thing you read you add a positive thing. Then you the can thing? also subscribe to positive news. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like about the topic, right? No. Like, so if you if you read a thing of like, oh, this is happening and this thing and it's all coming and it's knocking at your door, it's going to kick in and kick you in the chest. Then you say, all right, here's a picture of Huckleberry. This is her chilling. She loves to sit on top of a picnic bench. I feel like this is your solution for most things. Just look at a picture of Huckleberry. If you don't have anything, call me. I have tons of videos and pictures <laughs> you have of, so Huckleberry many pictures of Huckleberry and Ripley. I take about... 11 a day. Interacting um, with pets in general with, with animals. Pets. For Solus, I started uh, feeding my deer outside. When things got really crappy earlier this week, I went out there and cut up some apples and, and, and fed them to these two little deer Being that in come nature, out. physical distancing can still mean you can go outside. You just want to avoid really large groups. But Absolutely. especially being in nature, being able to breathe fresh air, those are all and just, super important. I mean, you can wash your hands outside. You can bring some sanitizer. You can bring some, you know. Um, one of the other things you can do is look at my dog, Huckleberry. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we've covered that. I'll give a shout out to another coworker of mine, Jack Nicolaus. Jack Nicolaus. He's been practicing what he's calling joyful closening mm-hmm. as an antidote to physical distancing. Another Explain. way to think about this is, you know, everyone's talking about physical distancing. Yeah. The contrast of that is social closening. As we talked about before, when you are remote from one another, you know how deliberate we're being right now to keep a distance from yeah. people? We have to be just as deliberate in creating emotional closeness. Physical distance, emotional closeness. So that could be chat roulette, or that could mean giving yourself a rule of sending a text or calling someone. Or FaceTime some people, yeah. Faces are so important to us as human beings. Faces are so important right now. I got another one. How about picking up a controller... And jumping on some Xbox or PlayStation, man. That's get out there. And, yeah, get out shoot there. Shoot people and, together. Well, I mean, Did shoot, you see that yeah. video in some quarantine places in Italy? People are getting out on their balconies. Oh, I saw and that. And they're singing yeah, together. Awesome. They're playing that music is... together. They're having conversations across the street. As panicked as humans can be, we're also very innovative. Yeah. And if you can create some new way, and this is a challenge to all of us, not just you know me to you and you to me and blah, blah, blah. 
if we can create some way and get creative to be close to one another, to be able to support one another without just like some random anonymous post you can put online and like, you know, this is what I feel, eat it. You know, like to go out there and like FaceTime people or, hey, let's sing a song, let's play a game. It's just a really fun time right now to be able to be social in a creative way. Yeah, so. exactly. I'm going to share just one more tip before we wrap up. Okay. This one comes from one of my heroes in psychology, James Penny Baker. This morning, I felt such an overwhelm of gratitude for him and his work that I actually sent him a thank you note. Oh my God, that is so cute. He's done so much amazing research, but I'll just highlight something that I think is so relevant right now. Mm -hmm. So he started out this work looking at people with traumatic life experiences. And he found that people... Actually, he didn't even mean to do that research. He kind of accidentally stumbled into the finding. He stumbled ass backwards into research. Yep. That's awesome. He was doing this other study. It's not like he was just like shopping. He was doing a study. Yeah, so he was doing a study okay. and he stumbled upon this finding that people with past traumatic life experiences, he found out that they later on in life had more physical illnesses, more visits to the hospital, even more incidents of cancer. Mm. But the good news is when he dug into these findings, he discovered that symptoms only occurred or occurred much more frequently among people that hadn't shared these traumatic events with others that were keeping them a secret. So it's almost like keeping it inside was creating this toxic condition for our bodies. So Penny Baker got curious. He wanted to see, is it that you needed to talk to someone about this stuff or could you just write about it? And it turns out you can. Mm. So he found that individuals who had experienced a trauma, they had 50% fewer physical illness symptoms and clinic Mm. visits after writing for just 15 minutes for four days in a row. It's incredible. Here's the most amazing part. After doing that expressive writing exercise, they actually had a boost to their immune function, meaning you are protecting your immune system and our collective immune systems just by doing some writing. And by the way, there doesn't seem to be a magic number here. It's just because this is how much time he had to do the research. And the rule is that you have to write openly, honestly. The point is not to reread it. The point is not to share it. In fact, you probably want to Right from the beginning, tell yourself that you're going to get rid of it, burn it up, delete it, whatever. As a side note, Penny Baker and his team did another study with individuals who had been laid off. And they found that three months after they did the expressive writing experiment, only 5% of the control group, the ones that didn't do the writing, had gotten jobs. And about 30% of the people who did the expressive writing exercise were employed. This is why I freaking love James Penny Baker. Because these results were so astounding, they called off the experiment. They were going to do it for a full six months. Mm -hmm. But they were like, the people who did not get to do the experimental condition, they did the control condition. They need to know about this. So they canceled the experiment. And they said, hey, (laughs) we found that doing this exercise has such a huge impact, such a huge benefit. We're going to train you to do that. So for free, we're going (laughs) to build this session. That is awesome. There's a twist, which is they put together this session. They invited all these people. No one showed up. They followed up and they were like, why didn't you show up? And people said, "What? this is so fluffy. Writing is not going to mm-hmm. make me more likely to be employed. It's not right. going to boost my immune system. So don't be that person. If you're feeling acute, sustained anxiety or panic, please don't hesitate to reach out to a trained mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Psychologists are terrific. We love our therapists, mm-hmm. Brian and I. So if you not are the feeling- same person. <laughs> you and I? No, uh, our therapists. Our therapists. Yes, we have two different ones. And if you feel like infecting someone with something right now, what? spread this podcast around. Oh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> That's bad. Look at that drop. Boom. Let's make the desire to become a better human contagious. So look out for yourself. 
Look out for others. We'll get through this together. And thank you for listening to Talk Talk Psych Psych to to Me. Me.